in this dark hour, in these dark days. And at the end, I want to give you some gospel encouragements for you. Okay, so four examples of Jesus' sovereignty over the darkest days. First, we notice that Jesus foretells the Passover details. He understands exactly what's going to happen and what needs to happen that evening. Verses 12 to 16 show us that. Jesus knows ahead of time where he'll eat the Passover, what's going to happen, who he's going to be with, who's going to allow him to enter the upper room, this, this person's home. He knows all of this, and you see this in this paragraph. Verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now this is Thursday, Thursday night of Passion Week, if you will. Thursday night, Passover lambs were slaughtered. Most people know they were slaughtered on Friday. That's the Passover. But the Passover is also celebrated on Thursday evening. Galilean Jews, of which Jesus was one, ate the Passover on Thursday evenings. The Judean Jews, those in Jerusalem, the chief priests and all of those people, they ate it on Friday. So Jesus is celebrating the Passover, eating it with his disciples that evening, Thursday evening. And the next day, he's also going to die on Passover on Passover when the rest of the Jews were celebrating this. So on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, we've been talking about this. Where had Jesus been staying throughout this week? Do you remember? Remember the town? Starts with a B? Rhymes with Bethany? All right, got it. Bethany, you're there. All right. I won't ask you trick questions, all right? Jesus has been staying in Bethany. He's been eating in Bethany. He's been sleeping in Bethany, waking up in Bethany, and then coming into Jerusalem every day. Here, there's a difference. The disciples then say, where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? The Passover needs to be eaten in Jerusalem. Why? Deuteronomy 16.2. Deuteronomy 16.2 says the Passover is supposed to be eaten in the place where the name of the Lord dwells. They know that that's Jerusalem. So that's why pilgrims would come to Jerusalem to eat the Passover. They might be staying out in Bethany or staying out in the other villages and towns outside of Jerusalem throughout the week, but they're going to eat the Passover there in Jerusalem. So they ask, where will you have us go prepare for you to eat the Passover? That phrase, for you to eat the Passover, they're not just saying, hey, you need to eat the Passover. Uh, they're, they're speaking of his leadership of the Passover meal. Yes, he's going to eat the Passover, but he's the one, as you'll see, it, who's going to preside over the Passover meal. Rabbis would do that. Fathers would do that. And so they expect Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, to lead this Passover feast. So where do you want us to go and prepare this feast? It's got to be somewhere in Jerusalem. Verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. We've heard this type of thing before, right? In Mark chapter 11, before Jesus would, would ride into Jerusalem, he needed a donkey and so a king was allowed to take for a time an animal from someone to use at his disposal. So Jesus, the king, is showing his kingship and tells disciples, go meet this guy. He's going to have a donkey. Tell him I need it. Well, here, King Jesus, son of man Jesus, the, the, the lamb that's about to be led to the slaughter is also in charge of this procession as well. He tells his disciples to go ahead, meet a man carrying a water jar which would have been odd because women carried water jars. You'll find a man carrying a water jar, meet him, follow him. Verse 14, and wherever he enters, he's going to end up going to a house. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, 
The teacher says, where's my guest room where we may eat the Passover with my disciples? Now, this would not have been odd. Jews who had homes in Jerusalem were supposed to open them up for the other pilgrims that would come into town at this time. They were supposed to open up their room so they can have the Passover. They're all Jews, kind of opened up their doors this week, and you can have the Passover here at my house. So that's what is happening here. But this particular home is where Jesus was going to eat, where he planned to eat, where he knew he was going to eat. Verse 15, he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. So we know that Peter and John are these two disciples, which is interesting because Judas was the one that carried the money bag. Peter and John would have had to go into Jerusalem, buy bitter herbs, get the lamb sacrificed, and then have it, have it burnt and cooked so they could bring it back to this upper room. They would have to buy these things, prepare these things, but the one who normally would do the shopping, most likely Judas, isn't the one he sent. Jesus sends Peter and John. Why? Because we know from last week, Judas has already got it in his heart. He's going to look for a way to betray him. So Jesus, Judas would have gone to the chief priests, would have gone to the scribes and said, he's going to be in that upper room around the corner right there that night having Passover. But Judas doesn't know where it's going to be. That's intentional. Jesus has to have the Passover with his disciples. So he sends Peter and John ahead to prepare the room for them. Verse 16, and as the disciples set out, they went to the city and found it, just as he had told them. Surprise, surprise. Jesus knew that the man would be carrying the water jar. He knew the home. He knew the master would let them in. And the disciples find out that he knows what he's talking about, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus foretells the Passover details. He is in charge, my friends. He's in charge of what's going on. We're starting to see that. Now, there's a second example of Jesus being sovereign over these dark days. It's in verses 17 to 21. Jesus foretells the betrayer's identity. He foretells the betrayer's identity. Now, at this point, you're there in verse 17. At this point, we've got three paragraphs left in this section, right? Three paragraphs, 17 to 21. Then you've got 22 to 25 and 26 to 31. Big deal, you say. Yes, big deal. We've got another sandwich from Mark. If you've been going through Mark with us, I point out the sandwiches. Something happens, something different happens, and then something like the first thing happens. So the beginning and the end are similar, and there's something that happens in the middle. What is the sandwich here? There's a betrayer in Jesus' midst. One of his disciples is going to betray him. What are you going to see in verses uh, 22? through 25, you're not going to see a betrayer. You're going to see Jesus being faithful. So you're going to see a disciple being unfaithful, Jesus being faithful, and we're going to come back to all the disciples being unfaithful. And you're meant to see not just the disciples, all of them, not just their unfaithfulness. You're meant to see in the center, but Jesus is faithful to his own. He dies for his own. And that's how the rest of this passage flows. Faithless disciples, 17 to 21, faithful Jesus, 22 to 25, faithless disciples, 26 to 31. But let's notice here Jesus foretelling the betrayer's identity, verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. Now to us right now in this room, yeah, I know, Judas. No, no, put yourself in their sandals. 
They don't expect it to be one of them. They don't expect that. This would be shocking to them. This will make them, verse 19, sorrowful. It says they began to be sorrowful, which means they were sorrowful throughout the rest of the meal. This isn't just, oh man, that's a bummer. No, this wounded the group. One of us? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? The gospel writers tell us they were saying. He said, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. To eat with someone, I mean, that's a big deal for us. You invite someone over. In that culture, it was even a bigger deal. To eat with means that you were together. There was a relationship there. It was, it was special to share a meal together. That's why Jesus highlights in a few different ways the one eating with him, dipping his bread into the, into the sauce with him. That's why Jesus identifies that because it's such a big deal. That someone who would be in your home or with you, eating with you, would betray you. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? Verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. Now a lot of times we think that Jesus was kind of giving a sign here. It's one who, you know, is dipping his bread in the dish. And Jesus, as we see in John, hands bread to John. He would have handed it to all of the men. They were all dipping their bread in the dish. It's another sign of this is one who's sharing a meal with me is going to betray me to death. But we know that specifically handed it to Judas later on and specifically said, go and do what you will. And they thought he was just going, buy, going to buy more things. But really, Jesus knew he was going to betray him. Judas ended up leaving. So at some point shortly after this, Judas leaves. But Jesus is foretelling the betrayer's identity. He identifies it as one of the men there in that upper room eating with him. And again, Jesus is in control. He knows. He knows what the scriptures say. Psalm 41 probably wasn't coming to their minds. It probably might not have been coming to your mind. But listen to Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, David says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. There's a prophecy about Judas and his betrayal of Christ in the future. And I'll remind you in John 6, I've told you this before, in John 6, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do all along. But listen, listen to it directly from John 6, 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. This is Jesus earlier in his public ministry telling this crowd, uh, the, the, John's showing us that the crowd's getting smaller. There was this huge crowd, but as he teaches, and it gets harder and harder, the crowd gets smaller and smaller. Jesus is addressing that. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now, they were following him. They were walking with him. They wanted miracles. They wanted him to feed them. But they weren't trusting his words. Believe. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Judas is connected to a lack of belief, a lack of trusting in Jesus' words. John connects that for us. Judas is the one who's identified. Mark doesn't say the word Judas. We get that from the other gospel writers. But Jesus is saying, it's one of you guys who's going to betray me. I mean, this is, this is the worst of betrayal. It's not an enemy betraying you. It is a friend betraying you. I mean, we know the name Benedict Arnold, right? It's a famous name, famous traitor in American history. 
He had so many great victories and such a great leader and soldier for the colonies for so long. And then when he got passed over for some promotions, when he didn't get what he wanted, sounds a lot like Judas, by the way, when he didn't get what he wanted, he betrays the one who trusted him, George Washington, and he pl- plans this, has this plan with the British that never actually worked, and he ended up suffering for that. But we know the name Benedict Arnold. It was someone close. How could he do this to us? Same with Judas. How could he do this to Christ? And then here's the key. Interesting passage, or interesting verse, verse 21. Why is it going to be one of the 12? Why, why do we know this? Because it's prophesied. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. The Son of Man, the strong, conquering, Daniel-like figure, is going to die, which is astonishing. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So there's divine sovereignty over this whole thing. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the coming victorious one, the coming king, the coming conqueror, the coming one that all nations will bow to, has to go first, has to die first, has to suffer first. That's the plan of God. Jesus is following the plan of God the Father. But woe to the man, cursed be the man, damned be the man, by whom that execution, that death comes. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So you see divine sovereignty. God's in charge of this whole thing. But Judas is still to blame. This is where the great doctrines of divine sovereignty and human responsibility come together. This is what the Bible teaches over and over again. When Peter preached after Christ ascended and went back to heaven, when Peter preached the gospel, he pointed to the leaders of Israel and said, you killed him according to the plan of God. God's sovereign, they're responsible. This is what happens here. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but this is focusing us on both of these things. God's in charge. Jesus knows the timing, knows the plan, but woe to Judas who betrays him. So again, we're building the case, right? Mark's building the case. Jesus is in control of these dark days. Let's look at the the third example of this. Jesus then foretells his sacrificial death. He foretells his sacrificial death. He knows his death is going to be one that is a sacrifice. It's not just that he's going to die in some odd way with no meaning. His death means something. And he describes that. He speaks of his death this night at this meal before it happens. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body which was not something normally said at a Passover meal. Take, this is my body. Let me walk you through a little bit of the Passover liturgy, okay? Some of you have been to a Passover Seder, and you've maybe seen this type of liturgy. So important in the Jewish life. So important for them to see how they were connected to their ancestors that came before them out of Egypt. This was a big deal to the Jews of the day. The evening would start with an initial blessing over the day or over the the, the meal and the wine. There would be four cups of wine, by the way, and we'll get to that a little bit later. So there's this initial blessing over the day and the wine. Everyone's gathered. People would be reclining at the table, a formal type of way to eat dinner. They'd be reclining at the table, and the, the leader, the host of the evening, which is Jesus here, which often would be a father or a rabbi, the leader would have this initial blessing over the the meal and the wine. Then 
there'd be vegetable appetizers, okay? Appetizers for everyone, vegetable appetizers, and a second cup of wine. Third, the youngest son in the family would then ask the patriarch of the family, why is this night different from other nights? They were supposed to ask that to the father. Why is this night different than other nights? And the patriarch would then recount the Exodus story. And he would say something like this. We're celebrating Passover because God passed over our houses in Egypt. We slaughtered a lamb. There was blood and the death of that lamb saved our firstborn from dying when he executed the firstborn of the Egyptians. So we call it Passover because of that. We're eating bitter herbs because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our fathers. The Egyptians were the slave masters. The Israelites were the slaves. And that's why they eat the bitter herbs. And then the father, the one leading the Passover meal, would put himself back in the story. Now, he wasn't there. He wasn't there in Egypt hundreds of years before. But he would put himself back in the Passover story and say, it is because of that which the Lord did for me that I came out of Egypt. It's just a a good little reminder to us, to us parents leading our home. We're not just teaching Bible stories. We're telling our young ones what God has done for us. And this is what the father would do at this Passover time. And then they would sing the first part of the Hillel, the praise Psalms, 113 to 118. They'd sing the first part of those together. And then there'd be a blessing over the bread. And this is what we have in verse 22. This is the part of the, of the Passover meal that we're brought into in Mark. There'd be a blessing over the bread, and there'd be a distribution of the bread. But Jesus says, take this bread, which wouldn't have been abnormal. Take this bread, divide it up. The father would, the rabbi would. Jesus says, take this bread. This is my body. This is a different Passover meal. You get that? This is different. He turns this Passover meal into what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, being one with him. Take this as my body. This is showing that Jesus' death would be one where he suffered for sin. And you know what? You've suffered for your sin as well. You've suffered in him. He was executed for your sin on the cross. Your suffering took place on that cross. Your receiving the wrath of God happened in him. So it's as if you were up there on the cross and he took, you're united to him and his death is your death. Now you didn't experience the wrath of God, but you were in a sense in him as he experienced the wrath for you. This is Jesus highlighting his substitutionary death. Then there'd be the main meal. So appetizers, main meal, there'd be bread, bitter herbs, a fruit sauce, which is the one he's referring to that Judas would have received the bread from. Bread, bitter herbs, fruit sauce, and of course the lamb. And then there'd be a third cup of wine. Then they'd sing the rest of the Hillel, and then a fourth cup of wine would conclude the meal. That's what's happening this night as Jesus leads this ceremony with his disciples. Now let's look at the cups. This is fascinating. Verse 23, and he took a cup. This is now the third cup, right? Because he distributed the bread. They had the main meal. So the bread comes first, main meal, and then the wine. So this is the cup it's talking about, the third cup of wine. He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Notice By the way, communion is a corporate act. 
It doesn't say they all kind of went back to their home and privately prayed this little prayer to God and communed with him privately. No, no, no. This is something that the community of faith did together. They all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. We know that he's speaking of the new covenant. What did the old covenant show us? The covenant with Moses? What did the old covenant show us? That yeah, there was blood to bring people to God. It was the blood of an animal. You are connected to God because that animal died for you. That's how serious this connection is. Death brought you to God. That old covenant was pointing forward to a new covenant when God the Son himself would shed his blood to bring you and I near to God. And that's what he's doing at this meal in this moment. He's giving them wine saying this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is my blood of the covenant. So the reason, Christian, the reason you have a relationship with God is because God in human flesh came and shed his blood for you. That's what this is teaching. That, by the way, is how secure you are with God the Father. His son died for you. No other sacrifice to make. This new covenant is far better than the old covenant. This new covenant has some weight to it. It's not a bull that dies. It's Jesus Christ, the son of God, who dies This covenant is a lasting covenant, an eternal covenant. With this covenant, you get the Holy Spirit inside of you. They didn't have that as Old Testament saints. With this covenant, you have the law written on your heart. With this covenant, you don't have to keep going to the temple to sacrifice over and over again. You just remember Jesus Christ did this once and for all. It's done. I am saved. I am restored to the Father. I am secure. That's what Jesus is showing. Now, I told you about the third cup. Let me walk you through what these cups were called. There were four of them. The first cup was the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification, which made the people think sanctification means other than, right? Separate from, different from. The first cup they would drink reminded them we're different than those Egyptians or the Jews of Jesus' day. We're different than the pagans out there, the rest of the world who hates God, the one true and living God. We're different so they drink that first cup and know we're a privileged people. They would drink the second cup, which was the cup of plagues, because they remembered. They, in many ways, were around when those plagues were happening to the Egyptians, and they saw the wrath of God coming down on the Egyptians. They were around for that time, so they drink this cup, and it's the cup of plagues. The third cup is the cup that Jesus is referring to here, that he's, he's giving them. It's the cup of redemption. It's the cup that shows that this, my people, are saved by me. This, my people, are saved by the living God. And as they drink the third cup, they remember, he took us out of Egypt. We are his people. We're saved. But then there was a fourth cup. And Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup this night. You know why? The fourth cup signifies something that would come later. Remember, when, when the Jews, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, did they come out of Egypt and go, man, we're in the promised land. Out of Egypt, next day, promised land. Did that happen? No. Forty years, they wandered around in the wilderness. They were longing for the promised land. And so the fourth cup was a sign of fellowship. It was called the praise cup. And it was, the idea was when they finally got to where they were with God in their own land where he dwelt with them, they would praise him and fellowship and eat with him. That's what the fourth cup was a sign of. 
So Jesus initiates the third cup, the cup of you're saved, you're redeemed by my blood, but I'm not drinking the fourth cup yet, guys. Why? Because they're not in heaven with him yet. He hasn't brought the final consummation of the kingdom yet. And he still hasn't, has he? We're waiting for that. We, like the disciples, are waiting to drink the fourth cup. We're waiting for the time when we are with Jesus Christ, drinking of this feast and celebrating the fact that he redeemed us and now he's with us, we're home with him. That's why in verse 25, Jesus says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again. He's not talking about just, I won't drink any more wine ever. He, because he would drink wine later on when he rose from the dead. He's not talking about that. He's p- talking specifically about this night. I won't drink again tonight in this Passover festival. Normally we drink four, guys, I'm only drinking three. I won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And they would have known that meant that he would be drinking it with them in this fellowship meal. That's why he doesn't drink the last cup. There's a prophecy about this in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 25. Jesus is so amazing. Isaiah 25, verse 6, 6 through 9. Isaiah 25. Isaiah is a book about the people longing for their salvation, right? They know they've messed up. (laughs) They're longing for salvation to be dwelling with God again, to be restored. Isaiah 25, 6 says this, On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. I mean, do you see how good the wine's going to be? It's three times it's mentioned of how wonderful it is when Jesus is going to prepare this. Verse 7, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Now notice this. Notice the personal relationship between God and his people. God is preparing a feast for his people. God is destroying his people's worst enemy. What's that? Death. God is going to wipe away tears of sorrow from his people. This is meant to show you how intimate the relationship is with God. That's what God wants you to see, how intimately connected he is to you. Continuing on, the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I want you to hear two things. I want you to hear the closeness, the, the longing the, the believers wanted. We want to finally be there with him. No death, no sorrow, no reproach. We just want to eat with him. I want you to hear that in Isaiah 25. I want you to see that in Mark 14. The fourth cup hasn't been drunk yet. We want the fourth cup. And I want you also to see the praise that comes. That's why it's the cup of praise. When we are with God in heaven, what will we do? Hey, Jim, told you I'd make it. Hey, Sally, we knew we'd be here. No, no, no. Praise be to the wounded lamb. Praise be to the one who was slain and died for us. Praise be to him. That cup has not yet been drunk, and we're waiting for that cup. 
You see the faithfulness of Jesus contrasted with the lack of faithfulness from Judas and the rest of the disciples. That's what you're meant to go away with. See the faithfulness of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Well, there's a fourth evidence that Jesus is is in control over this whole dark hour, this whole dark day, series of dark days. Fourth, verses 26 to 31, Jesus foretells his disciples' defection, disciples plural. He talked about one disciple earlier. Now he's going to talk about all the rest of the disciples now. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, singing a hymn. Jesus, lifting up his voice in song, singing to God the Father. The songs that they would sing in the Hallel, Psalms 113 to 118, aren't songs of lament. They're songs of praise. Jesus, friends, don't ever forget, was a man with emotions and limitations. He allowed those limitations to happen. That's part of his condescension. He's a man. He said earlier, we know from the gospel writers, that he was sorrowful at that meal. It was a sad meal. Judas is going to betray him. His disciples are all going to leave. He was sorrowful, but he leaves the meal knowing he's going to be betrayed soon. And what's he doing? He's singing praises. He's going to be betrayed by one that was very close to him. He's going to be abandoned by all the rest in his greatest time of need. Imagine being arrested for no good reason with 12 other friends, close friends, and they all run away and leave you. He was betrayed. He was going to be abandoned. He was alone. He went through a false trial. Nobody's sitting in the courtroom to vouch for him. James wasn't there to say, you can't do this to my brother. He's innocent. Peter wasn't there to say, no, no, you're getting it all wrong. These are false charges. He never did anything. Nobody was there in the courtroom for him. The prosecutors were all there at the defense table, no attorney, just him, as they conjure up these false charges. He's betrayed, he's abandoned, he's alone, he's going to go through a false trial, he's going to be executed naked. The the pictures today, don't believe those pictures. He's executed naked in front of his weeping mother. He knows all this is going to happen, and what's he doing just hours before? Singing praises to his father. He's singing praises. Can't wait to hear Jesus sing. Why is he singing praises? Because he knows the end, brothers and sisters. He knows what happens in the end. He knows that he'll reign victorious. He knows that he'll be elevated. He knows that he'll rule over all nations. He knows that he'll receive all praise and glory, and he wants to obey his Father's will. He knows he's in charge. See Mark 14, 12 to 31, and know right in your Bible, he's in charge of the darkest hour. They sung a hymn, went out to the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives is on the way back to Bethany. So they leave the city, go east, come to the Mount of Olives, which he stopped and prayed at. We'll see that next time. He stopped and prayed at. What would be the normal plan? He'd go to the Mount of Olives, stop and pray, and then go on to Bethany and stay for the night. That was, humanly speaking, what the plan was. 
Okay, eat the Passover meal, go to the Mount of Olives on the way back to Bethany, stop and pray, and then go to Bethany and go to sleep. He'd have been awake all day. He's going to go to the Mount of Olives, pray, and that's where he's going to be betrayed. Then that launches him into the Jewish portion of the trial, then the Gentile, the Roman portion of the trial, and then the next day to the execution. He dies in the afternoon. Jesus died after being up for 30, 36 hours maybe. Jesus died tired. He's going back to bed, stops at the Mount of Olives to pray, Remember, that's why he'll say, I'm getting ahead to next week. Okay, just a little preview, all right? That's why he tells his disciples, wait here and pray. You need to pray right now. Something's going to happen. Pray right now. They're all tired. Of course, it's bedtime. They just ate the Passover meal. It's late. They've been in Jerusalem. They've got to walk two miles back. Pray. Watch and pray. Jesus can't think about sleep right now. He's about to be betrayed. He's praying to the Father. He's in agony. We'll see that next week. But I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. Mount of Olives sung a hymn, going to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. I mean, they they just heard earlier on the meal, one of you is going to betray me, and they're like, no, 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 no. It's not I, is it? It's not me, is it? It, 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 Right? And they might have thought, oh, I don't think it's me. Here, they all know it's them in a sense. You'll all fall away. You'll all leave me. I mean, they just shared the most intimate meal you could have in Jewish life together. They just shared the Passover with their rabbi. He washed their feet at the beginning of this meal, John 13. He loved them. They loved him. They were sad because they learned one of them would betray him. And now he says, you'll all fall away. Because why? That's the plan. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's Zechariah 7. Zechariah 7 teaches that God would strike the shepherd of the sheep, and that would scatter the sheep. Notice that God is the one striking the shepherd. This is the plan of God. That's why Isaiah 53 says it pleased God to crush him. There was a plan. Lest you think that's unkind of God the Father, Jesus and God the Father's will are together in this. It was the will of the Son to be crushed by the Father for salvation. And if you see Philippians 2, God the Father raises him up to glory because of what he went through. The Father loves the Son. He has him go through the cross, come out the empty tomb, raises him above all things. But this is the plan of God. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28, listen to Jesus. You're all going to leave me. That's what he just said. You're all going to leave me because it's been prophesied. I'm going to be struck by God, and you're all going to flee. You're going to think of yourselves before me. You're going to abandon me, the one who's shown you love, the one who's fed you, the one who's taught you, the one that's literally brought you to God. You're going to leave me. What do you think Jesus would say after that? I'm done with you. But look what he says, verse 28. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. He's telling them where he's going to meet them. You're going to leave me, think of yourself, abandon me, and I, after I'm raised up, I'm going to be somewhere and you're going to follow and be with me. Do you hear the security of the gospel in this? Have you ever sinned and felt like God should be done with you? We all have, but he's not. This is your God. 
After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Uh, you got to see this. Look at Mark 16. Okay, hold on. Don't look at Mark 16. Stop. Let me set it up. I read it earlier. I read our whole passage earlier. He says, all of you are going to leave me. And then who speaks up and says, not me. Who is it? Peter. You're all going to leave me, and this is going to be the famous one who left me. Okay? That's what Mark 14 shows us. Look at Mark 16. No, no, again. Hold on. Hold on. One more thing. Don't look. (laughs) Angels are messengers from God. God the Father sends a messenger to the empty tomb to tell the women something. God the Father wants these women to tell something to the disciples. Okay? Listen to what it is. You can turn there. Mark 16, 7. 16, 6. Look at 16, 6. And he, this young man dressed in white, this angel, this messenger from heaven, and he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples. What's the last thing we know about the disciples? They left him. But God the Father sends this man clothed in white to tell the women something to tell the disciples. God the Father wants the disciples to know something. But go, tell his disciples, and Peter. Ladies, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Ladies, go tell his disciples who abandoned him. Ladies, look especially at Peter when you say this. And tell Peter that he's going to go to Galilee and meet them. The securing love of Jesus Christ for his sinful, unfaithful, defecting disciples. That's your God if you're a Christian. Verse 29. Back to Mark 14, verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. We'll get to more of Peter later. We won't camp out on this right now. But you see the self-confidence of Peter. You, all, you, you know what else you see here? You see Peter not listening to Jesus. Just listen to what Jesus says. Instead of saying, even though they won't, they're weak in faith, I'm strong in faith, they might, I won't. Instead of that, just say, then Jesus, how do I overcome this? You say I'm going to do it this night. If I do it this night, what do I do afterwards? What, help me, what do I do? Jesus told him after this, pray, pray, pray. Did Peter pray? No, he didn't. Lord, I need thee every hour I need thee. (laughs) Even though they all fall away, I won't. Just a little side note, a little application for us over here. Don't compare yourselves to other Christians. Don't compare your strengths to other Christians' weaknesses, please. Peter comparing his strength to their weakness. They might fall away, I won't. I'm stronger than they are. Brothers and sisters, your strengths are not every Christian's strengths. And, see Peter, your strengths aren't as strong as you think they are. But your weaknesses also aren't others' weaknesses. 
Every Christian has different weaknesses. Every Christian has different strengths. It's good to learn from Peter. Don't compare yourselves. Don't look at other people and say, I don't see how Christians do it. Are they even a Christian? They have different weaknesses than you do. Spurgeon says this. There are a great many of you who appear to have a large stock of faith, but it's only because you are in a very, very good health and your business is prospering. If you happen to get a discorded liver, a disordered liver, or your business should fail, I should not be surprised if nine parts out of the ten of your wonderful faith should evaporate. Spurgeon saying, hey, be careful. Be careful looking at the weaknesses of other Christians and thinking you would never fall into that. Just be careful. But let's learn from Peter. Let's realize, Lord, I need you every hour I need you. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you. I mean, this is Jesus saying, it's, uh, he's not saying, you know what, you might be onto something, you might, no, no, no. I'm serious, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Roosters crow between 12 and 3. Between 12 and 3, they would crow, and they would crow repeatedly. Before the rooster crows the second time, you will deny me three times. Tonight. Peter, I'll never do it. Tonight you'll do it. He doesn't say I'll never do it. And then Jesus says, well, you know, when in a couple decades you might be a little weaker and you might give it. No, no, tonight you're going to do it. We know what would happen later, right? Peter would deny him three times. Jesus is sovereign. He knows. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I won't deny you. Well, he would deny him and he would die. Because of Jesus, that's another sermon for another time. But he said emphatically, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be that weak. I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to sin that way. And he did. And they all said the same. I've got a little arrow in my Bible. You're there in verse 31. Look over at verse 50 of Mark 14. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. It's a matter of what? 19 verses. They all said emphatically, if I must die, we're not going to die. Peter said emphatically, they all said the same. We're not going to do it. We're not going to deny you. And then just a little bit later, later that night, not long after this, they all left him. Jesus foretells this. He knows this about his disciples. He knows they're going to defect. So I hope you've seen his sovereignty over these dark days. He knows what's going on. He knows about the Passover. He knows about his betrayer. He knows that he's going to give his life as a substitutionary act for those he loves. Who will then, he knows, defect and leave him. He knows all of that. If you're not a Christian, I want to highlight this for you this morning. I hope you see that Jesus doesn't save good people. Jesus doesn't save faithful people. You may have the impression that Christians think that they're going to heaven because they're so good. We don't. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned our own way. Jesus came to save the defectors. He came to save the rebels. He came to save the ones who are not faithful to God. He came to save me and came to save you. Jesus comes to save sinners. That's why Jesus came. That's how good God is. God didn't say, I'll save those who can 
be moral and get to me. No, he says he came to save the sinners. If you feel like you're a bad person. Now, normally you talk like you're a good person if you're like the rest of the world. You compare yourself to other people that you're better than. But listen, if you feel that you actually are bad, you say the wrong things, you're too lazy, you don't work hard enough, you're lustful, you treat people bad, you're angry, you've hurt your kids. If you feel that, the good news is Jesus came to save and forgive you of all that and to change you. So go to Jesus, the one who saves the unfaithful. Trust him with your eternity. Tell him you're unfaithful and ask him to forgive you, and he does. There's a hymn that Christians sing, have sung for years, and it goes like this, and I would say it to you. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Go to Christ today. Talk to him today. He hears the call of those who are in need. Let me close by giving Christians three encouragements, okay? Encouragements for disappointed or disappointing disciples. You're disappointed because you're disappointing, okay? There we go. Encouragement for the disappointing disciple. You ever feel like you're disappointing? Join the club. Here's some encouragements from this passage. Number one, your failure is not the theme of your life. Sandwiched between two failures is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's saying that his body was executed, given, slain for you. That's what defines the Christian's life. Look all throughout the New Testament. Look what Christians are called. Saints. Loved ones. The holy ones. We don't feel that way. But that's what heaven calls us. Why? Because your failure is not the theme of your life. It's not. So I want you to hear, disappointing disciple, hear Jesus say, take, this is my body, shed for you. You're united to him in his death and in his life. Secondly, second encouragement for the disappointing disciple, there's always something to sing about. There is always something to sing about. We might be eating the bitter herbs, but we're going to drink the fourth cup, if you will. We might be experiencing our own cross, but we're going to receive the crown. We might be going through suffering, but we're going to enter glory. There's always something to think about. Think about it this way. Here's something to think about today. If you're in the darkest trial you've ever been in, here's something to think about. You're not in hell, and you won't be, ever. Sing about that. Find something to sing about. Have hymns roll around in your head. Have good songs roll around in your head. There's always something to sing about. Take the cues from your Lord. He's going to be executed, abandoned, and he's singing praise to God the Father because he knows what comes out the end. Third, third encouragement for the disappointing disciple. Jesus knows our future failures and says that he will fellowship with us again. Jesus knows your future failure And he also says that he will fellowship with us again. He, in this passage, says he'll meet them in Galilee. And then he says they're going to all leave him. He doesn't say, oh, remember that whole Galilee plan? Never mind, you're all going to leave me. That plan's still intact. He'll meet them again in Galilee. He'll drink 
the wine with them in the kingdom. Hear the promises of the future that Jesus is making to his disappointing disciples. I'm gonna, you're going you're gonna to leave me, I'm going to see you in Galilee. You're going to leave me, I'm going to drink this wine again in the kingdom. So when you're tempted to dwell on your failures, dwell on his promise of fellowship with you. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Love that. So I hope you're encouraged. I do hope that you look at your own failure in the failures of the disciples here. I think it's good to pause and think through that, to confess the Lord. But please don't end there. Please go back and read 22 to 25 and see the Lord giving himself for you. See the Lord saying that he's going to be with you in the future. See the Lord's grace over your sin. Please see that this morning. We're going to sing a song as we close. Uh, we're going to sing, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Seems like a fitting song to see. Sing at the end of this. Beautiful poetry in this song. Let me sing, or let me, won't do that. <laughs> let me recite one of the verses to you. Oh, joy that seekest me through pain. Pause right there. <laughs> They're experiencing pain. They've left him. They're afraid. They abandon him. They feel guilty. And God from heaven sends an angel to tell the ladies, tell the disciples, he's going to meet them over here. That's God seeking his own. Oh, joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. And the reason that'll be a tearless morning is because he'll wipe away those tears. Praise to the wounded one. Let's pray. Lord, your sovereignty is meant to comfort us. We saw that earlier from Psalm 93. You being in control is meant to keep us from panic and worry. But Father, more than that, it's not just that your sovereignty comforts us. Your security comforts us as well. We can't out-sin your love for us. And for every true disciple, we think of that and it makes us want to not sin. It sanctifies us in a way. We can't sin, out-sin your love for us. Grace is greater than our sin. And so as we sing this next song and talk about the difficulties of life, but then the promises that we hope in, we pray that you'd receive this singing as an offering to you where we sing about your security, sing about your prevailing love. We do look forward to the time where we'll drink with you that final cup and we'll sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.